I was a staffer, Lowell, for a very extreme, very extreme member of Congress. And to accomplish that, they shot rubber bullets at the protesters and journalists. So I worked for basically Trump and the RNC in 2016, helped get him elected, immediately switched political parties. So who should pay for that health care? Obviously, the federal government should subsidize that so that these people aren't crippled in debt for doing the right thing, doing their patriotic duty, trying to not only do their job, but save lives going above and beyond, really showing the strength and value and everything that is great in the American spirit. Welcome, everybody, to Learn With All. Today marks the beginning of a series on politics in America. My objective is to talk to everyone from every different party to try and get a holistic view of what it's like on the inside of these groups. What are they trying to go for, that type of thing? And so the idea here is you get fed a lot on the news, and I think that you get a, a little bit more of an accurate view of things if you talk to an expert who's just lived and done these things. Whether you're a millennial or a Gen Z or someone else, I think this is going to be a great series for you if you want to get it straight from the horse's mouth as well. And the first person today joining us is a real political chameleon. He has been on both sides of the aisle. He started as a Republican. He became a turncoat. We talk about that. And is now a Democrat. Justin's one of those people that's kind of worked on a little bit of everything within politics. So when I ask him the questions that I have, which are really like a 2023 on up guide for navigating politics in America, he's the great person to ask and answer these questions with. The one thing I will say up front is there's going to be bias here inherently. He was a Republican, now he's a Democrat. There's going to be liberal Democrat type leanings in terms of how he answers things. He does try to be as well-rounded as possible. Uh, and at the same time, you just sometimes can't get away from your own sh shadow. And if you're listening to this and there's something you thought, oh, I don't think that's right, or I, I believe this differently, that's kind of the thing about politics. Like everyone has a different opinion. But at the same time, I want to learn. I'm very hungry to learn. I'm not acting in any way like I know what the truth is. But I do think that if you have enough conversations and you really look at what's happening around, you can kind of approximate what the truth is as well. So I want to just really appreciate some kindness and, and patience as I figure out the nuances of politics in America. Now, without further ado, Let's get to know Justin, a former lobbyist, congressional policy advisor, and now a staunch Democrat who once played a pivotal role in the Republican landscape. So you have experience in both political parties, well, the, both major political parties. There's some other ones in America, but they're really quite small. Um, how has that perspective shaped the way you look at politics in America as, as a millennial, as someone you know, about my age grouping as well? Like how, how's the fact that you've been on the inside a little bit for both changed just how, how you look at and hear and like decipher down what you're reading in the news and stuff like that? Oh, well, that is a, a great question. First, it's it's great to join you on your show. I think that it provides me a level of insight from having real-world practical experience in both parties, the Republican Party and, and then later on the Democratic Party, of working on legislation, getting that legislation through Congress, signed into law, and then also trying to influence, to put it kindly, the media. Um, so... I guess what I'd say is it provides me a perspective. At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial, and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed, and told their friends. Where I am more open-minded to folks who have not worked inside politics having different views than myself because I've seen how the elected officials in both parties work on their talking points, reach out to these voters, and try and sell these voters what they think they want to hear. Yeah. It's a, so it's definitely an asset. So I was, I was wondering to some extent, like, 
if you change your party, there's like this feeling I get when I hear politicians speak where it's basically, I can't ever be wrong. If, I, if I've changed my mind, I'm going to shift it to make it sound like that was my opinion the whole time. And that's just like when I'm looking at debates and stuff, it just feels that way. And I can be wrong on this. And so I, I was, I, I'm kind of curious there if, if you got any static from people, like you go from a Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican, etc. If like, then they're like, oh, we can't trust this guy. But it seems like it's just an asset. Like now I understand both sides of it. If I if you work with me, I can get like the chance that whatever you're working on goes through successfully. I have the perspective to help you with that. Like it just seems like it's just like a, a net positive for you. Yeah. So I also ironically, so I interned in Washington D.C. when I was in college for a member of Congress from Maine. He was from the second district. So that is very rural Maine, right on the border of Canada. Why am I telling you this story? He was one of the only members of Congress not to be college educated, which is interesting. He literally was a working man. He worked in a paper mill. Uh, he wound up running for governor of Maine, ended up losing, I think it was in 2016. But during that time, I learned from folks that uh, I took meetings with that were trying to give me advice that you get one time in Washington, D.C. to switch political parties. You know, they said mm -hmm. your internship doesn't care. But once you start working, you can switch political parties one time. People will understand that. Uh, generally speaking, that's true because I was able to work as a policy advisor for a Republican in Congress. Then I worked in the media at the RNC during the 2016 campaign. And then I became a, an appointed official for the elected Democratic governor of Puerto Rico uh, in 2018. Uh, however, uh, despite being able to pull that off, it was very difficult because of exactly what you said. Mm. In politics, typically speaking, one, everybody's tribal, right? So if you're in the Republican tribe or you're in the Democratic tribe, you are very, very unlikely to trust an outsider of your tribe trying to come into your tribe because you'll view it as somebody potentially trying to infiltrate your tribe. Uh, in addition to that, the, the other uh, real issue here is politics, largely speaking, once you move on from an entry-level job, is networking-based. So to get a mid-level or a senior level job in a Democratic office or in a Republican office, usually you will have a friend that will refer somebody. So the friend you trust in a different political office or, or lobbying will refer a younger person or somebody on that mid-level or senior level management for whatever job they're applying to you. And that's how you'll cultivate, you know, five or 10 qualified applicants. And then you'll get hundreds of applicants from posting the job online if you do post the job online. So it's very difficult to break in because you got to break down the barrier to entry of trust. And then you actually have to under like see the job posting and get your resume read, get the interview, have the coffee or drink or lunch with the hiring person. Uh, and those are the obstacles that are very, very difficult. So generally speaking, switching political parties is not good for your career. Uh, because of those two issues. And the third issue is that network that I'm talking about. Mm. Once you switch, you burn down your entire network that you've spent years building up. Mm. But is it possible to just say, hey, I'm an independent and just kind of go where you want and just be very upfront about that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, anything is possible. So I don't want to say uh, it's completely impossible. Uh, but I, I don't see how it could be 
you could work for a Democrat one year, Republican the next, and mm. continue that up because people would just view you as a career climbing turncoat. And in many mm. cases, that would probably be the truth. Yeah. Well, I've been reading this uh, Rob Carroll book on LBJ, and, he, and they talk about how he started out as kind of like an FDR Democrat, but then he started being like this really Southern Republican that wasn't for a lot of great things for certain groups of people. But then he also was the person who like tied them together to allow um, like civil rights and a lot of stuff to start pushing forward, but it required them to work together. So it sounds like when you're a staffer, well, maybe it sounds like this way, but it sounds like if you're a staffer, like uh, in the organization, there's not a lot of cross pollination that can happen. But when you reach a certain level in the party, then you can start pollinating with the other side of the, the, the aisle because uh, you have to work with them so much. But it's not, even in those examples, it, he definitely was like, I'm still the same person. But I understand where you're coming from. And he used the insight to understand people to like move his bills forward. No, that, that's interesting. So I don't know too much about LBJ, but he's a very important figure, obviously, because of civil rights. Uh, but also, he was considered one of the most effective leaders in Congress when he was in Congress, because he was able to coerce people into doing what he wanted, which was passing whatever legislation he was trying to pass. I will say, though, um, as a younger staffer, there's been a shift. When I came into politics, I began, I interned in 2012. Fantastic time. Interned in a Democratic office, hung out with a bunch of Republicans because I met those people and they were fun. Uh, you know, the Democrats were super fun, that they're super nice people, but uh, the ones that I met during my internship were more focused on, you know, pure legislating as opposed to going out and having drinks and experiencing the city and learning and networking and the more social people aspect of things. Uh, and then fast forward, being a staffer, I was a staffer, Lowell, for a very extreme very extreme member of Congress. And I was a policy advisor uh, a year and a half out of school, which is rare. Usually it takes, you know, three, four, five, heck, some people six, seven years uh, to get that position. And this was back in 2014. Still, we would hang out with Democrats all the time. My friends were Democrats. My friends were Republicans, despite working for a Republican that was basically um, Trump before Trump. Uh, he was that type of wing of the party. So it was great. However, fast forward to 2016, 2017, and now, uh, the extreme polarization and rhetoric that has ushered itself in with Trump rising to power has changed the dynamic largely of the social aspect in Washington, D.C., in so much that Democrats and Republicans don't really hang out as much anymore. And that is because, you know, both parties think that the other party is, is doing something awful. Um, but even, you know, fast forward from 2016, there was an attempted coup on this country. So a lot of Democratic staffers, due to the words of a Republican, words and actions in some cases, of a Republican president, had to hide for their lives, where they were literally locking congressional doors and offices um, and doing everything they could to avoid political violence stoked by the other party. And that had even more of a chilling effect on the tribal nature of how things operate in D.C. And it's for the worse, because when you're hanging out as a Republican with Democrats, as a Democrat with Republicans, you're able to feel each other's humanity, 
right? And you're able to tone things down. And maybe because you have friends in the other party, you're not assuming that everybody is working in bad faith, but that these people actually want to make the country better just in their own um, understanding of what that is. But when you break down those lines of communication, that's when you can really start to demonize the other side because you're just not interacting with them and it's harder to see the humanity of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But do you think do you think we're stuck with this two party, like this duopoly type nature of Congress, uh, like Republicans and Democrats, uh, or do you think that like systems like changing first past the post, like ranked choice voting, voting or star, like what's happening in New York City, would change things a little bit so we could have a little bit more diversity when it comes to different parties being able to like share power with them, which would require people to work together a little bit more. That's a big question. Uh, Lowell. I, I think we are largely stuck with a two-party system, one. Mm. And the reason for that is multifold, right? Uh, first being gerrymandering. What happens is you have uh, districts being redrawn by politicians to basically try and maximize the number of Republicans or Democrats coming out of that state. And what you tend to have happen is they draw the districts in a way that creates more extreme districts. So instead of having a bunch of moderate districts that are toss-ups, you'll have a bunch of very safe Democrat seats, for example, in Maryland. Um, And as a result, you'll have a couple Republican, one or two Republican districts, and those districts are very red. So instead of having coin flips in five districts, you'll have maybe a coin flip in one and extreme blue and extreme uh, red uh, and no real middle. The result is obviously the politicians are going to pander to their voters in those districts. The voters in those districts tend to be more extreme. Number two is the media system. Instead of getting your media information from three outlets like ABC, NBC, CBS, or whatever the traditional broadcast news was in the 1960s, you also have cable news now. And cable news is more partisan, much more partisan than broadcast news used to be. You also have uh, vastly different and new, a number of online outlets. You have social media where you can get information. You have podcasters where you can get information. And people learn in politics, generally speaking, uh, fear, anger, and hatred sell. And that tends to be extreme rhetoric so your folks Mm. on the right wing like tim pool for example or michael moles or ben shapiro they tend to get uh you know uh large audiences and people then emulate them and then the discourse gets more more extreme and then the last aspect lol so those are those two parties the last aspect is the money uh the money is based on these two parties And what happens is not only does that mean candidates have the ability to have money to run campaigns and be more competitive, but that also means that, lol, throughout, let's just take a state. Let's take uh, New Hampshire. Throughout New Hampshire, you're going to have a Republican and Democrat in damn near every single race from president of the United States down to local dog catcher. And that's very important because the more candidates you have on the ballot, the more outreach they're doing, the more um, independent voters they can swing, the more voters in their party they can turn out. And if you have a um, full and competitive roster up and down from federal to state and local, that's going to give each candidate a little bit of a boost. So if you're a a third party that's trying to nudge your way in, Mm. um, 
it's near impossible because you don't have the infrastructure. So that that would be my answer. I think we are stuck with it. I think ranked choice voting, though, is one solution to promote less extreme candidates, even in potentially gerrymandered districts. Yeah, I was recently looking at Wisconsin, which I keep, it keeps coming up to me that Wisconsin is like one of the most gerrymandered states in the United States. Apparently, it's like really high, high ranked. And there's apparently a new Democrat coming in as the judge who's going to like force potentially redistricting. Um, it sounds like there should be like a way to like mathematically do it or something, like keep politics out of it. But I mean, I don't know how you do that because like politics, but in nature is like human choice and how to do things. Uh, but it I'm, it's going to be really interesting to see like how that changes over the years. Because apparently it was like gerrymandered in like the 2010s to be more red, and then now they're trying to be like slowly make it more blue. Um, when it just seems like with gerrymandering, it's like not representative of people, which then leads to like uh, leads to my larger question is when you have gerrymandering, when you have these two party systems, when you have uh, all like this this complexity for people like you and me, like millennials who are just kind of going through their lives. Uh, there's like we're dealing with like COVID, all these different like upheavals. How do we? navigate that for our benefit how do we make sure that when we care about something even though like things are like really wobbly in terms of like the districting and all these the complexity that our voice still gets heard and the change that we care about you know filters into something meaningful versus like people just kind of talking in our ear until we go away yeah so i would say you can't mathematically mm -hmm. create districts however i i believe there was a i went to tufts university there's a project i believe out of that school um trying to accomplish a way of you know, uh, preventing gerrymandering through math. I, I think the way to do this, though, and I want to say there's 10 or 12 states, I'm not going to rattle them off, uh, that have appointed independent commissions. So mm -hmm. basically, it is, you know, a bunch of Republicans, a bunch of Democrats on a commission or nonpartisan folks on a commission that uh, take a proposed map from a legislature, so let's say a Republican-controlled uh, House in North Carolina, and they review it and they have to approve it, or they just draw the map themselves. And what you're supposed to do is it's supposed to be um, a map that represents the geography, demography, um, topography, like of the area, as opposed to what helps one party or not get elected. So that, that may be the best we can come. There's no perfect solution, though, like you said. Um, your question is, how do we have our voices heard? I would argue that we have our voices heard through obviously voting that's that's the first and most important um but volunteering right so we're we're all busy and i'm not saying that if you work 60 hours a week then and you have kids and you have pets for example and a spouse that you will have time to volunteer but i think the most effective way is to go out there and vol volunteer for a candidate that you believe in that you want to see win that election regardless of local, state, or federal. Uh, the second way that you can make your voice heard is to actually write to your member of Congress or to give them a call. If there is an issue that you are passionate about that you uh, think would be financially beneficial, uh, would be beneficial to the security of your locality, the state, the country, what you can do is you can call in to your member of Congress and advocate for that issue folks that are interns and staff assistants and legislative correspondents the lower level staff will take that information 
if enough of you and your friends call into a specific office on a specific issue, that will then get that issue elevated to somebody like I was, a legislative assistant or a legislative director, and then from there to the member of Congress. So they will, if your voice is loud enough, if enough of you work together and you call in to make an argument, it will get funneled up to that uh, elected official. That makes sense. I was reading recently the a biography on FDR, which by the end of the biography, I was less impressed by him and more impressed by his wife. But basically, FDR was FDR was more of a how loud would you yell in my direction was how 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 quickly I respond to you. It's like he, like a lot a lot of people think like oh he just like humanitarian like focus on these people, but it's more like those people through his wife or other means were brought up to his attention because he had so much going on. Like it makes sense. Like it's not like this evil thing, but. The, that makes sense with what I've been reading about these political people, where it's like it's kind of like you have to be a bit loud uh, to be heard. And the so there are like I think we're kind of a passionate bunch, the like millennials. And like a couple of years ago, there was a lot of like uh, protesting and like some people call it rioting, depending on where you're at. Um, when when you are in that state where you're really upset, I, like this is kind of like a general question, like why don't people just like do a recall election and get the people voted out that are against whatever they're for? And then stuff it with people that do care about it. If everyone's like already galvanized and focusing on it, it seems like such a like a, a no-brainer. Like, hey, we all care about these things. Let's start a recall election. But, though I have no idea how recall, recall elections work. I just know them from Parks and Rec, and that every now and again I read about them in the news. But it seems like if we are passionate about a subject and people are voting count, counter to what we want, why not? You know, sure, eventually like vote them out. But if you know in a moment, um, is there any power in doing like a recall election if you're already protesting and like very passionate about a subject? My understanding is you cannot do that. So oh, okay. for a member of federal elected official, it is, mm. you know, your term is what you get for U.S. House of Representatives uh, or a member of Congress. Now, I will say mm. that what you can do, though, is what I did, which is so I worked for basically Trump in the RNC in 2016, helped get him elected, immediately switched political parties and went to work for the government of Puerto Rico as a Democrat. I want to say it was 2020. The George Floyd atrocity murder by cops happened. I was upset. I went out and protested. That's what you can do. You, you can go protest. And, you know, I was protesting in Washington, D.C., and I was protesting specifically on the night that President Trump moved from the White House to Lafayette Square to hold up a Bible and have a photo with him and General Milley. And to accomplish that, they shot rubber bullets at the protesters and journalists. Mind you, the protesters, I was probably 30 at the time. I was one of the older people in the in the protests. It was mm. a lot of teenagers. It was a lot of Gen Zers. Uh, it was a lot of young parents with their kids, like a lot of women. Um, so just to do that, I'm putting that in perspective to shoot the, the youngest and most vulnerable of us with rubber bullets that can kill and can maim, lose an eye, um, is just atrocious just for a photo op. Um, but also that protest, for example, was depicted as being violent in Washington, DC. I will tell you right now that it largely was not. It, it like if you watched Fox News, which I, I watch both of the different uh, Fox and CNN, mostly some MSNBC, um, and you saw how they were depicting the protests versus CNN. Like Fox depicted DC as a war zone, and that just was not the case. Uh, you know, 
there were a couple folks dressed in all black. I don't know if they were Republicans or Democrats. Um, I would say they were neither. They were probably far left or far right. They had masks on. They had backpacks. You just couldn't see them. That you could like basically see their eyes. So clearly, they're up to no good. And they would start throwing stuff at cops. the The way that you can handle that is tell them to stop, and and get them to stop. Like uh, there is no room in a peaceful protest for violence. But if if you don't if you don't want to do that, that that's okay too. It's not your necessarily your obligation or your responsibility. But by going out and protesting for or against something that you believe in, not only are you making your voice heard, like you just mm. mentioned, was important for FDR. Um, but it's also a cathartic release. It feels good to go out and do something and be active and passionate and try and attempt to achieve something uh, based on your value sets and your true beliefs uh, as opposed to any type of financial or monetary gain. It's a healthy thing to do, and it's why our system is still the best system in the world. Yeah. But, and I think uh, a minute ago, to circle back on uh, something said previously, like you do have uh, experience with lobbying. Uh, and so I hear read about a lot about people not liking lobbyists, but there's the positive side of it. If you if, like, if you agree with the lobbyists are lobbying, then it's a good thing. If, if you don't agree with the lobbyists are lobbying, it's a bad thing. I think sometimes the perception is that lobbyists from like really big corporations are able to just like hammer politicians more than, you know, me or you, if we were just like working together to make something heard is our lobbyists fair or is it disjointed in that way where like the biggest buck can get the best lobbyists that can make things like go in the direction that they want? Oh, that's a tough question. I think generally the more money you have, you are yeah. able to hire a better lobbyist and that will probably get you a significant amount of influence. Um, so in one regard, yes. However, I'm going to try and steel man the art. So, so, and, and I agree. I, I think that um, for a variety of factors, you know, lobbyists for big corporations can have too much power. Uh, not good. Um, but lobbying is only one. So the lobbying that we're thinking of, which requires a lobbying disclosure act. So basically the lobbyist has to go file a form saying that they are trying to influence U.S. politics, whether it be the House of Representatives, Senator, or the White House, um, and fill out who they're lobbying on behalf. So they're lobbying on behalf of a big defense company or big tech or big pharma. Um, that is all one way of lobbying. Another way of lobbying is if you, hypothetically speaking, think that cancer drugs are too costly. So you'll have the corporate lobbyists that may be advocating for keeping the price of drug medications high. And then you'll have doctors, physicians, you'll have folks with cancer flying in. Um, for example, to put the really specific example on this, um, John Stewart, he is uh, the former Daily Show host. He now does something with Apple TV, I believe. Famous guy. He basically lobbied on behalf of uh, the firefighters, the policemen, the the service workers that helped save lives during 9-11. And as a result of them running into the burning Twin Towers, as a result of them removing the rubble and saving lives of people, they basically were exposed to a ton of very toxic chemicals. And now, and for the rest of their lives, and even some of their children and offspring, they are getting these horrible, 
deplorable diseases, the incurable diseases. Um, so who should pay for that health care? Obviously, the federal government should subsidize that so that these people aren't crippled in debt for doing the right thing, doing their patriotic duty, trying to not only do their job, but save lives going above and beyond, really showing the strength and value and everything that is great in the American spirit. Um, so Republicans didn't want to fund that. But what John Stewart did was he went out and he brought all of these people to Congress to testify in front of Congress, to go and meet in their offices. In addition to that, he went on and did a media blitz on his own. I'm sure you can just type in uh, John yeah. Stewart 9-11 families, right? You know, you've probably seen what yeah, I'm talking I've about. I've seen it. So, so there, like, there are multiple ways of lobbying, and I'm happy to get deeper into the corporate aspect of it. It's just when we want to paint something with a broad brush uh, mm -hmm. as white and black, not that you were doing this, but a lot of people here yeah. lobbying, they think it's bad. I'm sorry. I think, I think what John Stewart was doing was good. And, and the story, he was effective. He got a bunch of money passed and hopefully these families will be taken care of for the rest of their lives for healthcare. Yeah. The, so if, if I have an issue, it's, like one thing that I could do is try to find a lobbyist already pushing forward the issue and then I could lend them potentially my, my words, my experience for them to use or potentially even go to Congress uh, and then be a part of that. That'd be a way. So uh, someone listening in like, hey, I care about A, B, and C. Uh, I hear, you know, I Googled, you know, lobbyist A, B, and C, <laughs> you know, essentially, because if they have to fill out a form, there's they're somewhere with a repository. And then uh, open you can link up with something. Open Secrets. Yep. Is that like the dot com? I think it's OpenSecrets.org. Okay. Yeah, org makes sense. Or I'd like .gov. But, uh, so then you go there, you type in your thing. If it if it already exists, you can just email them. And it, it sounds like they'd be really excited for you to reach out to them. Like, they like oh, great, another you know bullet for us to use to, to push things forward. Am I, am I getting that correct? Yeah, yeah basically, you, you can do that. Um, you could... There are uh, petition sites that you can sign mm -hmm. where you can click on different interests that you have so let's say it is i don't know uh, let's say it's saving major league baseball because i'm wearing a red Sox jersey a uh, red Sox hat i'm about to watch a red Sox game with a bunch of friends uh let's say you want to do that uh you can go on you can go on the petition websites click that you're interested in major league baseball and then you'll receive an email alert for example saying there's this letter to congress trying to save major league baseball do you want to opt in you can click yes read the letter <laughs> before you opt in certainly read the letter um and, and that is e even easier than going through the uh, hoops of trying to go through opensecrets.org or the lobbying disclosure form uh forum where all of this database uh holds this information um so there are ways it's just you know we're millennials take 10 minutes and google it right yeah yeah it just uh i think half the battle is just knowing you can and so like i, we, I think i learned a lot here just that didn't even know existed. So, uh, if anyone else uh, listening in takes advice here, uh, please comment on it because I'm sure we both would like to know that we had an impact on them. But you mentioned John Stewart a minute ago, and he, I've been enjoying his uh, series where he, he interviews like these big people, and uh, he like pokes holes in them, like what, how like, like apparently like the interest rate increase apparently hurts labor. I didn't I didn't realize this like or something. Uh, like I don't, I'm not a like fan finance guy, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Is that true? Uh, it's just like then you can like dive in, dive in deeper on these things. But he said this like this quote, which I I'm just kind of your your opinion on it. Maybe like it's too big, but um, he said that in America we privatize gains and we socialize losses. Do you think that's fair? Is that like a fair characterization on how we how we do things in America? I could see it like to some extent like with the bank bailouts, like someone socializing because you're taking like 
people's money and then you're you're ba bailing them out. But they're also like, we get that money back in the end. So like maybe it's not the same way. But do you think John's like, what do you think of that quote in general? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I I want to preface what I'm saying in that I believe in capitalism. We have a capitalist society right now. However, I believe in a well-regulated capitalist society. Hmm. Um, but generally speaking, yes, 100%. We, hmm. um, it, what was the quote? Read it again for me. No, I mean, just, from what I remember, it's uh, we privatize gains and we yep. socialize losses. Like that's, yes. I'm like literally picturing it from me. Yeah. Yeah. So we privatize gains. So for example, the um, Trump tax cuts, right? Hmm. Um, what happened was large corporations received massive tax cuts. The company I used to work for, Seaboard Corporation, a Fortune 400 company, they probably received a bunch of tax cuts. The airlines that we all fly on, um, Delta, American, you can just rattle them off. They received a bunch of, of financial benefit from those tax cuts. They then didn't just reinvest that money into their companies. What they did was they went on and did stock buybacks. So yeah. things were good. It's 2018, 2019. They're making record profits. The tax cuts results in just their bottom line increasing, right? So just pure profit, the best type of money to these companies. And, and they decided, you know what? We're going to uh, take care of our board of executives, our executives in the company, our largest stake and shareholders um, through buying, through doing these stock buybacks, which will increase the price of stocks. Okay. Well, COVID hits and all of a sudden, Nobody is traveling. So what happens? Do they look at those profits and try and claw some back? Do they, uh, you know, try and weather the storm? Uh, no, no, they don't. What, what's the first thing they do? They come to United States Congress. They go to, I think it was President Trump at the time, and they are begging for a bailout. But they're begging for a bailout in a way that says, if you don't give us this money, there will be no more air travel in the United States. So it's not only begging for a bailout, it is holding a gun to the head of the taxpayer and the member of Congress saying, if you don't give us this, we will be we will not have a first world transit system anymore. And there are arguments of whether we even have a first world transit system anymore. Um, so it was something that basically needed to be passed. That's an example of socializing the losses because that comes out of your check. It comes out of my check and everybody else. But guess what? The executives that received all of those bonuses from the stock buybacks and the tax cuts, they didn't get a pay cut. They, they, all, they all were able to keep everything going because the United States Congress passed a 60000000000 billion with a B dollar bailout. So yeah, that's just one example. There are tons and tons and tons of other examples. Is it, do you, what direction do you think America is trending? Are we trending in more like the Nordic model, where it's more of like socialized, where people are taken care of on the lower end so they can then achieve? Like Nordic people seem to be pretty happy, like that's as a model. Um, or do you think we're, we're moving more towards the direction of like more pure capitalism, where like we're doing more of these type of things? Like as someone who's like inside of it, do you think we're like we're trending in any direction, or are we like finding a new path, which, which is like more like omni of whatever going on in the world? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of the Nordic countries still are capitalist, but again, yeah. I'm not an expert on those societies. Um, for example, I don't think healthcare for all is socialism. I think that that's a basic benefit. Like, um, I don't believe Social Security, for example, or Medicare, uh, things that Republicans absolutely love. It, it's not a socialistic program just because it's a government program, right? 
Um, that being said, to try and give your question an answer, let's just look at what happened under Republican control. I think Democrats had the House, but Republicans had the Senate. They had the White House. Democrats had the House during COVID. It was the first time that there was major direct payments to U.S. consumers. So if you remember during um, TARP in 2008 financial crisis, there was a bank bailout, there was an auto bailout, there was a very minor direct payment to some homeowners and a bailout in that regard. We're talking on a way lower level of scale than what we experienced during the COVID crisis. But during the COVID crisis, there was a paradigm shift that I think really doesn't get enough focus and gets lost on a lot of people. That paradigm shift resulted in Republicans who claim to be fiscally conservative, pro-capitalist, anti-socialist, handing out money to basically everybody making, I think it was under $100,000 a year, uh, just for being, just for living. Um, so if that is how we are going to begin to approach future crises, if that is how we're going to, if there is, for example, uh, massive job loss all of a sudden in 20 years from now due to AI, right? Let's say AI, it's all driverless trucks and one to three million truck drivers in America are all out of a job basically overnight. And we're just going to start giving them direct payments with Republicans in control. That would make me assume that maybe we are starting to head towards that type of model. And the reason is relatively simple. I worked for a Republican in the House who was a deficit hawk. He was against spending. However, he was able to hold that position because President Obama was in charge in the White House and um, there was uh, no ability, no unified Republican control. So there was a foil. So it's very easy to be against something when you aren't in power. And the Republicans are always against spending when they're not in power. When they are in power, though, go look at the deficit increases under Republican uh, administrations. This is not uh, subjective. This is not like, oh, Justin's a Democrat. He's spewing Democratic talking points right now. This is objective based on the facts. The minute that they have power, unified control, whatever have you, they are against cutting spending. They are in favor of increasing spending on programs that they like. Tax cuts, for example, we've already discussed. Uh, defense budget is another one. Uh, largely speaking, farm subsidies. I was a lobbyist for a big agriculture corporation. That's another one. Um, so generally speaking, I, I don't think that, nor should we ever have a quote-unquote unregulated capitalist society. I, I don't think we're also trending towards a socialistic society. I think we're somewhere in the middle and we're able to be a little bit unique because of the size of our country, the purchasing power we have, and quite frankly, being overwhelmingly the most powerful country in the world with our military, the most innovative with our business and technology sector, and I would argue the uh, most intelligent with the great academics that we have. Yeah, I think most people want to come to America. Like, they all want to immigrate and go to our universities. Apparently, there's a bunch of uh, ones in China that are starting to pop up that are pretty prestigious. I was reading recently that uh, apparently, like, China, when they have students over here, have, like, this type of, like, office thing to, like, watch the students to make sure they don't, like, off reservation or something. It's like, well, that's interesting uh, to, like, think that, like, the like China has, like, such a reach in America. Um, but, uh, it's interesting to hear you say, like, America in such a positive way, because like, I think a lot of people think, you know, is, is this, like, the part of decline or whatever? I've been watching, um, I've been reading Peter, 
Zahir, Zahir, uh, he basically thinks that, that there's like a reverse globalization happening where uh, like America's not taking over the spots anymore. Like we're tired of it, essentially. We're tired of like being America's, like the world's policeman and like, you know, being like the person like it protects trade, essentially. And so we're like retreating from that. And then other people are going to pop up like China and stuff and like start like gobbling things up, um, which and just in general, it's, it's just like he's like one of the other people that kind of points out that America has like the demographics to be really good in the next hundred years where like China for instance like doesn't have the demographics and stuff like it makes all these like really positive points about America's place as it relates to the world and for Americans themselves like are things going to get better are they going to get worse uh, in some ways like uh, it seems that like from like the 70s like that like pay for instance for a lot of people like unions have been going down I'm actually going to ask you about unions in a moment but um, it's just interesting to hear is like someone from the, on the inside of politics is like excited for the future of, of America when like Fox and etc. It's like, oh god, everything's crumbling, everything's blowing up, and stuff like that. It's like it's kind of like it's kind of nice to hear that from not someone. Oh hell yeah, I'm excited about about the future, and <clears throat> I think there's two parts we can we can look at this right. Um, we're gonna put this part aside for a second, uh, which is Republicans and Democrats under the Biden administration have worked together to pass two transformational bipartisan bills. Um, First, the Infrastructure Act, which everybody knows, uh, you've heard about it. It is changing out lead pipes so that people in Flint, Michigan, for example, kids, aren't drinking toxic water. It's improving our airports or railroads. And then the CHIPS Act, which we'll get into after discussing our main competitor, which you've hit on, is China. Mm -hmm. um, so for the United States to be usurped for uh, a global hegemon, I think we are still a global hegemon. So for everybody listening, that means the undisputed top power in the world. Um, for us to be usurped, one of two things has to happen or a combination of these two things. There needs to be internal strife that brings America down, tears us apart from inside, definitely possible. And also an external competitor needs to rise. Everybody has been making a big deal of China, as we should, because Russia's not a competitor. Russia's a terrorist basically oil uh, terrorist gas station that's on its last legs before we switch over to clean energy right it's scary because they have nuclear weapons and we don't want them to just fall apart because then where do those nuclear weapons go but i'm getting sidetracked uh with china you mentioned it so they have uh you know billion p they have far more people than us they uh, additionally have nuclear weapons. They have been modernizing their military. They have been expanding our, their military from bases in Cuba to Djibouti in Africa to building islands in the South China Sea. Very scary stuff. However, they also have a, a few different issues. Number one, their authoritarian state, which has allowed for uh, the government to consolidate power and make massive changes over a short period of time, which would be difficult or impossible here in the United States to do so in such a planned way, because they can just literally bulldoze a city, for example, and create a dam and displace a million people without anybody being able to do anything about it. During COVID, we saw during the lockdowns, they were literally imprisoning cities of 10, 20, 30 million people, uh, having drones follow them around. That that's, <laughs> That is beneficial for trying to make mass change quickly. However, that system lacks a feedback loop. So it's mm -hmm. not elected officials that have to listen to the voters like in the United States and then make changes or listen to the voters and say, hey, okay, we need to take a step back from the ledge. 
We just had an insurrection. Biden is now president. Let's work together on two transformational bipartisan bills in the CHIPS Act and infrastructure bill. Um, so because they lack that, there's the chance of extreme internal upheaval because the politicians get so out of touch. The people get so pissed off. The draconian measures uh, exacerbate the people getting pissed off. Uh, and then, then you have real problems. Uh, the second issue is a massive demographic cliff. Right. I think it's mm -hmm. in 100 years, they're supposed to lose half their population, which is yeah. horrible for, uh, you know, a, a country economy, so on and so forth. The third problem is the way that they look at immigration. Uh, they believe that everybody should be homogeneous. Right. Well, look at the Uyghurs, for example. They are different. They are Muslim. They're, um, uh, you know, not necessarily going along with everything. So what is trying to do? They commit genocide. They put them all in a, a camp. So how do you get over a demographic glyph of extreme population loss? It's through immigration. And China's society is not set up for that. So those are the issues that is facing China. On the inverse here in the United States, yes, we have been experiencing um, a period of, um, I would almost say, proto-isolationism. Um, we've pulled away from proposed trade deals, which we can get into, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have uh, been a multi-regional trade deal focused on containing China. Both Trump and Biden have, have Trump pulled out. Biden has done nothing to advance it. However, our system has that feedback loop. So we're a more robust system where we're able to take these shocks um, from internal and external forces and also um, then adapt to those shocks. But lastly, because I'm going on a little long here, uh, we've reasserted ourselves on the global stage with Ukraine. Not only are we spending a ton of money, not only is it vital to democracy, freedom, and also preventing authoritarian creep around the world um, through setting up consequences for that potential creep, uh, but additionally, Biden and the United States Republican, uh, well, Biden and maybe some Mitch McConnell, um, they, they have worked together to be the leaders for Europe, for uh, our South Asia uh, Pacific partners in cobbling sanctions together, in funding, in weapons transfers, all to Ukraine. So I think that's a very positive thing and bucking the trend of isolationism. Yeah, uh, I think I'm a... I'm a I've read into the Chips Act, for instance, and it would, I was surprised at uh, how like surgical that was, or seemingly it was. Where you know you had you know China, from what I was reading, was like basically like if it was nailed down, they were taking it. If it was nailed down, they like found the blueprints anyway, and like building their own versions of things. And just like over the course of like forty-eight hours, they went from being able to like manufacture, have the intellectual know-how to build things, to not have like everyone had to like basically renounce citizenship or come back to America. You can't. And now, like, uh, it's even like they've layered it even more. Where if you're if you're developing certain technology, you can't develop with them anymore. And like limiting it, it's like it's such a smart thing. Like the Peters here guy said that uh, they're between like Biden and Trump. It's like Trump said, like kind of like cast a light on China, where uh, and said like a lot of things. Or Biden's coming in with like legislation and a plan to like implement those ideas. But they're like they're not too dissimilar in terms of like the policy of wanting to like contain. Or uh, counteract what China's doing in that in that region, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, the chip act is—it it seems like probably like the coolest thing I've I've, I've read in the last like ten years of like someone just like coming in, seeing like this really big problem, and instead of it being like a nuclear option where you're like you know you're blowing up a city or something, you're just like completely gutted an entire infrastructure, intellectual infrastructure for an entire like uh, nation. I thought that was like 
I, I don't know of any other example that was like that. Like it seemed like quite masterful from an outside point of view. Um, and just like a couple of days, they went from like, oh yeah, we can build whatever we want to like, yeah, we really can't build advanced stuff anymore. Yeah. So the evolution was President Obama and his administration mm-hmm. thought that they could change China through economic influence and trade, basically putting McDonald's, really dumbing it down, putting McDonald's everywhere will create a friendlier China, uh, economic codependence, and will avoid war. But not only that, our values of freedom, capitalism will shine through. Trump came in, he said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, He was right, because we hadn't gotten anywhere uh, under that approach that President Obama had. Uh, And he basically, I mean, the problem is... Lowell, to be frank, and I'll be short here, he had no policy acumen, no policy knowledge. Mm -hmm. So while he was railing against China in his own State Department, you had um, two different tracks of career staff, uh, of appointed staff. These are people that Trump brought in. This is not deep state. These are Trump appointees working against each other to implement their own China policy. So it was very discordant. Mm -hmm. It was incoherent. And, you know, there, there were um, some things that were tough on China that you could argue hurt Americans more than it hurt uh, the, the PR, uh, People's Republic of China, the government, like, for example, steel tariffs. Um, but Trump just China, China, China became a talking point, like you said. Uh, President Biden comes in, and what you mentioned with China being able to create high-tech things and then overnight not being able to, um, not only has Biden kept a lot of the sanctions on China that Trump put in place, but he went a step further, significantly further in a lot of ways. One of them being the high tech uh, sanctions that you mentioned. These sanctions basically meant that if China can't produce it uh, without help from our partners or specifically the United States, then they won't be able to because Biden basically shut down all these sectors in concert with doing that, he worked with Republicans, with Senator McConnell um, and a, a whole host of others to pass the CHIPS Act. What is the CHIPS Act? The CHIPS Act is a 254, I think, but let's just say roughly $250 billion piece of legislation that is not only focused on increasing investment in academic research here in the United States, uh, tying that academic research, which is a little bit controversial, to actual innovation, because normally academic research is done for the spirit of academic research. And then you are able to discover all of these things, and then from those discoveries, you can then find practical applications. So um, that was a little controversial. However, there was a ton of subsidies to large companies to build chip fobs in the United States, which is basically um, our ability to procure chips for phones, computers, cars, things we need. Heck, our defense uh, missiles, high, 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 high tech stuff uh, is largely dependent on um, Taiwan and overseas capacity. So this bill over the course of 10 or 15 years is going to build, I think it was five or six different chip factories in the United States, get them up and running and producing critical, critical resources here domestically. So it was not only China, you're going to be lack of a better word, you're going to be stunted um, uh, by our sanctions, but also America is going to be propelled by our vision for the next 10, 15, 20 years and investments backing up that vision. Yeah. Uh, so for someone who's been on the inside for so long, and then I definitely want to like jump into like some, you know, the election stuff as well, but um, has there been stuff 
like the chips acts that have been going on that just hasn't been talked about. I feel like this last couple of years, people are talking a little bit more about what they're doing, which is nice. Like, hey, like we're doing the chips acts, we're doing X, Y, and Z, the infrastructure bills. And people have been talking about it before. Um, but maybe I just haven't paid atten- attention. I move around a lot, so like it's kind of hard for me to like know what to pay attention. But has there been anything on that level or anything that exceeds that level in terms of your thought in terms of how it um, propels Americans forward uh, into the future better that uh, that you think about as I say that? Like I'm just I'm kind of curious like if there's any inside baseball really smart policy making like that um, that you know clearly I, I missed. Yeah, so you you started this discussion off with isolationism. I think that yeah. under President Obama, one thing that he did get right foreign policy wise, he really was. He was not the best foreign policy president, and I say that as a Democrat. Um, One thing he did get right, though, was trying to uh, ratify the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I briefly mentioned. It was basically a trade deal to lower tariffs for United States goods to go overseas and overseas goods to come to us. Um, That would have created essentially a framework and a box that we'd put China in where uh, Vietnam and and, uh, Japan and um, Australia and a lot of the partners in the region, along with Canada, Mexico, U.S., um, were all working together under the same set of rules, Uh, transparency through their industries, transparency through state funding of these industries, um, and creating a level playing field for American producers, American industry, American manufacturers. And I go back to the American spirit. When we have a level playing field, we can compete and we can beat anybody. Um, so that would have been the uh, economic framework of cooperation that could have boxed in China and made their rise even more difficult. President Trump pulled out of it. Um, he ran against it in the 2016 campaign. I was at the RNC helping create talking points, not on that issue, but uh, on similar uh, issues, for example. Um, and, and I saw that firsthand. And once he was elected, he immediately pulled out. What has happened instead? Um, CPPPP. So that is China's version of this deal. They have then basically taken what we did and they've created their own version of it. Um, So that would have been one. However, what I'd say is maybe on a less grand scale, there are always things being passed into law that are uh, people don't pay attention to people. It doesn't get media attention, um, but they're extremely useful. So I'll go back to President George W. Bush, right? He created this Millennial Challenge Corporation, the MCC. It is United States grant funding for countries that meet good governance goals. So basically, if you cut down on corruption, if you're focused on feeding your people, um, so on and so forth, uh, if you don't stack the Supreme Court with your relatives, right? That's a good governance issue. Um, what will happen is you can apply if you meet a certain criteria of these metrics that the State Department says, okay, objectively speaking, you have met these, then the United States will give you $500 million for clean water. Um, the one country in Africa that received a grant like this is Benin. Uh, why is this important? There's a humanitarian aspect, sure. Um, but if we're talking realpolitik, like we want people to drink clean water. Um, but if we're talking realpolitik, that is the United States using our soft power, which is our money, to influence the development of a country in a way that the people of that country support the United States because they see this development coming from the United States, which in turn influences not only the government of that country, but the elites, because to stay in power, generally speaking, you want your people to be happy with you. Uh, And in doing so, you are starting to build, create, 
um, or you know, put the finishing touches on an alliance. And there are programs like that all over the place, domestically, internationally, uh, that are very good. They just don't get any coverage. Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about uh, that program. And I could think of another uh, benefit of it is a lot of times when you donate or give grants to uh, these countries, a lot of it when they have corruption, it goes in the pockets of the you know, the top people. So like 70% of it doesn't go through, 30% of it does. And so just from a, like, hey, you know, a due diligence, like the money's going where people want it to go, with the, they give a grant to like meet a certain threshold, then you get it. It's kind of like making sure that the, it's not going to get pilfered too. So it's like, a, yes. it's kind of a nice thing there too. Like, uh, the money's actually going to go towards what we want it to go. That's pretty cool. Um, when, for all these unseen things, is there, is there a way like layman can stay up to date that isn't just like reading policy manuals or something? Is there a good way to stay knowledgeable about the cool things that people are working on? Because um, it's really, really obvious just to, you know, get stuck on, like, oh, this person's doing, you know, this huge talking point, or this huge talking point. But, you know, Senator Bob or Senator Sarah from over here is, like, working on this thing, like, feed kids or working on building a bridge. Like, is there a way to, even even in the, your own backyard, to learn about these things without having to, like, you know, be on the inside like you? Is there a way to see these things? Yeah, there is. Um, so you need to also, like, if you just want to read and consume information about these things, a lot of senators, a lot of members of Congress, 535 of these people, they all have outrageously big egos. So they're all going to be promoting themselves and the work they're doing in the mm. best possible light. Okay. So a senator from Kansas, for example, I, the guy I, I worked for was from Kansas. So that's why I'm using this state as an example. Um, they could be working on something that has 0% chance of passing, but it could be wonderful. You don't want to learn about that. You don't want to read about that. Mm. So you don't need to sign up for newsletters. Maybe you want to sign up for the newsletter of the member who represents where you live. So in the, in the U S house of representatives, and then your two senators, I think what I would suggest though, is to go to, I'm going to give you two news sources, politico.com and you don't even need to read all the articles. Just go through the headlines. Something grabs your attention. Great. Look into it. Then go do your own research on it. Um, the next one is Punchbowl News. Uh, they, and, and I have you know no financial ties, nothing to these people. Um, they are a the best, the absolute best congressional news source out there from the inner workings of Congress. So the politics, the inner dynamics of how Republicans are treating each other, Democrats are treating each other, um, the, the, the palace intrigue, which I personally like, uh, but also find it interesting and very important. Like, is Speaker McCarthy going to keep his job? But also they will report earnestly on legislation that has a chance of passing or is a priority of a the, the Speaker of the House, the Leader of the Senate, and they'll do so in a way, usually, that gives you enough of an explanation to say, this is a top priority that they want to gain bipartisan support, support for and pass into law, or this is a priority that they want to use for the upcoming election, and it's known as a messaging bill, which means it's going nowhere. So that will give you, in a morning newsletter that is free, um, it's, you know, every single day, it's a short read, maybe 500 words. You go through it, you skim it, um, and, and that'll give you some information that then you can take 
You can go to congress.gov and read the legislation if you'd like, which is really hard. It's a very complex thing to do. Or you can just research the information um, from reputable sources uh, on the left and right uh, to try and get uh, more of an understanding. And last thing you can do is you can call your member of Congress, like we had talked about earlier, and ask them about your leg the legislation because somebody in that office will probably want to speak to you, even if it's an intern, and they're going to have their finger on the pulse a little bit more um, and be able to at least give you the talking points of their member, which you can then research further. Oh, it's fascinating. I've never heard of Punchbowl before, so uh, I love reading, and I, I know what I'm doing this weekend. I'm going to dig through everything you just said. But Nonpartisan, is, too. Yes, that's, that's a good feature. But, uh, is, um, so student loan forgiveness, just as a, a quick aside, the it's been talked about a lot, and is it one of those things that would be flagged as like a messaging thing? Like, hey, keep us elected, and you won't have to pay for your loans, or is it actually something they're trying to do? Do we know? No, so, so yeah, so um, to do it because of the court cases, like it has to go through Congress. It's not going through Congress. Um, but what President Biden tried to do is not messaging. It like he, the, the motivations behind it were very largely electoral especially considering that he was initially largely against such a proposal. So it makes sense to, uh, you know, try and give 10 or up to $20,000 of forgiveness um, to people that are in your base, right? You're basically handing them 20 grand. Um, also, a lot of Gen Zers want it, uh, at least the, the folks that I work with. Um, so a very small anecdotal sample size, but I think polling uh, backs that up. Um, but that's not messaging. What, what's messaging is example of last Congress when Speaker Pelosi was in charge. H.R. 1, it's a voting rights bill. So heading the first piece of legislation that they put on the floor um, was H.R. 1 to strengthen voting rights, I think was their talking points. Um, that was a messaging bill. They went out there. They said they need to do this. It's an existential threat to democracy. Um, we need to pass this legislation. That was never going to be passed in a law because it was um, on partisan lines and the nature of the legislation, because it wasn't a spending bill, didn't meet the bird rules. Those two terms, what does that mean? It means 60 votes in the Senate. So you're going to need Republican support for it. Um, so despite them being earnest or seemingly earnest in saying that they support this legislation, um, it was put out there to show their base voters in key swing states that they are working on this issue. And then, because they made it so prominent, they were able to message on that issue over and over and over again. Republicans have done that this term with gas stoves. There was one point where they said President Biden and Democrats were going to ban all gas stoves. So what they do in Congress, they pass the bill through the House. Going absolutely nowhere, it's an example of messaging. And there are, there are a whole host of other bills. At basically, almost anything that has gone through the House mm. is a messaging bill. That's interesting. Uh, and then I know we wanted to touch on uh, the presidential elections coming up. And I, I imagine like 2016's election is going to matter to the 2024 election, given like Trump might be coming back to run. And so I, I was curious, as someone who's on the inside of it, um, people have this impression that was did Hillary lose the election? Was it stolen from her, or did she just kind of give up at the end? And so, what I, I'm going to say what I read, and I just want to hear like your thoughts on like what actually happened, and then let's get into 2024. You know, you know, give everyone the Thunderdome. But uh, it's from what I honor, from what I've read, uh, Bill Clinton said, "Hey, Hillary, you, you guys probably want to like run, like do extra campaigns like Michigan and a couple places." And they were like, "No, we're going to beat Trump. He's an idiot." 
And then uh, Trump was like, hey, those are some areas that I probably should, you know, target. And he went there and he, like, those are the ones that, like, edged out his victory. And that's what I've read. Is that, like, a fair assessment? Like, they were, they were given, like, knowledgeable advice and they just didn't do it for whatever reason. Like, they thought they were going to win or they didn't have the resources or what have you. But, like, the perception that I, I've read is that they just, they had the resources, they just didn't want to do it. And then because of that, like, Trump won. Um, and they set up everything for the, you know, last, like, you know, six years or whatever. Is that, like, an accurate, accurate characterization of, like, how Hillary was defeated? Or was there other parts to play that allowed her, like Trump, to win that year? Yeah, so what I will preface this by saying is anybody that says that they know for a fact the reason why somebody won or lost a close pre presidential race is full of baloney. I won't swear mm -hmm. on your show, but they are full of it. <laughs> there are so many different factors that could swing an election where... 100 plus million people voted and it came down to 60,000 votes in several states um, that I would say you can't pinpoint one thing. It's all the above. So regarding what you just said, um, Trump campaigned in those states because that was the map that, you know, he thought was going to be viable. He thought he could take Pennsylvania, which he did, like the states that you rattled off, Wisconsin, um, so, so yes, he did campaign there. However, uh, Hillary Clinton just had a different strategy, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. as focused on these states because she thought they were safe. So she was focusing in other places, which is nothing like, oh, we have these resources. We're not going to use them. It's, oh, we have mm -hmm. these resources. We're going to deploy them elsewhere. Okay. So that's one thing. Two, you can, uh, focus on, you know, the messaging of each campaign and, and how that fit. Trump was an outsider at a time when people were sick of insider politicians. Trump was a Republican at a time where we just had a two-term Democrat. Um, Trump was using a lot of nativist language. Um, he came down the golden escalator where he paid a bunch of actors and actresses to stand in Trump hats when he was announcing his presidency to make it look like he wasn't a loser so that people were actually mm. there because there wouldn't have been people there supporting him at the time. And he said that, you know, most Mexicans that are coming over to the United States are rapists and murderers. They're not sending their best. So he used that language of fear and hate to divide. To stoke a, these people are coming over, they're killing us, they're committing violent crime, and they're also stealing your jobs. That was one of the planks of his campaign. Um, but also, there are a lot of other factors, right? Uh, and namely speaking, uh, Hillary Clinton used an email server that she probably, she certainly should not have used. Bad. James Comey then gave a couple press conferences, which I personally think probably had the largest impact on the election. Um, he gave a, a press conference saying that he was not going to... So, taking a step back, the FBI director is not supposed to really comment on these things, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's just out of um, normal precedent. Uh, he gave a, pr a press conference saying, basically, she's guilty of something, but I I'm not going to go and prosecute her. Then he gave another press conference in October and when you give an, it's called the October surprise, the closer to the election that something happens, the greater of an impact it has, because the more likely the American public is going to remember that issue. So he gave mm -hmm. a, a second press conference saying we're reopening an investigation because at the time, if you remember, there were emails, classified emails found on Anthony Weiner's website, a perverted former Democratic member of Congress, a sexual predator, um, 
his wife had used a laptop and therefore there were emails like on it and it came out. Um, so I think James Comey's press conference had a, a big impact um, with it. And then at the time, Russia was an issue. There were um, uh, social media farms. There were other aspects of it. The, they hacked the DNC um, and they released WikiLeaks, which I personally had to go through thousands of emails and then package those emails up in a way that we could basically try and manipulate media headlines. Um, that was a big thing to the point where the FBI came through my office at the RNC and their windbreakers saying, hey, the DNC had been hacked. You guys better have your two-factor authentication ready. Don't click on any attachments. Um, be prepared. Um, so I think largely it was a combination of all of those things. I don't think like the election was stolen, mm. um, but James Comey shoulders a lot of the blame. Okay. And then for 2024, do you think Trump's going to be uh, competitive with Biden again to be like the contender? Or do you think like another uh, Republican's going to beat him out and then there's going to be like a new person coming in? And then like, this is one of those big questions. I'm just asking huge questions because like, you know, it's like, you know so much about this. It's really fun for me. Uh, or do you think like these new, like the like the Kennedy guy who's coming up? For, I think he's a Democrat. Uh, the Kennedy guy. Um, I see him on a lot of podcasts. He's like the cousin or the nephew of JFK. Um, is he going to be like someone's going to like bump Biden off? Like, so is Biden? Does Biden for the Democratic Party have a contender that you think might beat him? And do you think uh, Trump is going to be competitive with being the Republican nominee again? So Biden doesn't have any credible. Uh, competitors rfk jr the son of rfk who is jfk's brother and attorney general of the united states when jfk was president is a freak he is mm. he there were uh years ago there were uh diaries published of him and he's like a sexual deviant he's a drug addict um more so though he's an anti-semite he has said that covid uh 19 was engineered to spare Ashkenazi Jews and I think it was Chinese people was his quote some really crazy shit saying it was basically sorry stuff saying it was uh, basically a bioweapon um, and also largely speaking he's funded by Republicans so he is a you know straw man a plant to try and create problems he was polling very well because people associated with him with JFK, but the more people got to know him, his polling has taken a dive. So let's just mm. put him aside, put him in the okay. box that he deserves to be in and never think about him again. Um, as for, uh, so Biden will be the nominee. Um, I think, uh, you know, I personally believe Trump will be the Republican nominee. Anything can happen though. Um, and if it is a Biden-Trump matchup, um, I think that it's unfortunately going to be a toss up. I like to believe that the American people won't elect somebody that, uh, you know, attempted a coup that is under serious indictment for one showing, um, classified documents of a plan to attack Iran to a reporter to curry favor with them who did not have that security clearance, who then when the FBI tried to get the documents back, tried to destroy evidence that he had those documents going so far as to flood a server in his 
you know, Mar-a-Lago to try and, like, destroy evidence of the, the video surveillance. They actually did that. This is not like a movie. Obviously, it's stored on the cloud. So they were able to store, kill, every, uh, destroy everything. They have, like, basically text messages showing him uh, doing all this. Um, so I think he's in trouble for that. I don't think the public's going to like it January 6th. I don't think the public's going to like it. Um, but we are so polarized as a country that it really will come down to you know the mechanics of running a campaign and um whether or not we hit a recession before november yeah because i would think based on what you were saying earlier about like the fear-based way that trump was speaking that them people coming after him in these ways would just like play to his his what he's saying and then people would be like oh look, they're doing it like they're coming for him so then we got to realize then you can't yeah it seems like it would galvanize the base even further and be yes. like his benefit of what's going on um, do you think there's, um, I guess we don't know, like, if it's actually going to go anywhere, like, the indictments and stuff, like, do you see, like, the probability of, like, him going to jail or something like that, it'd be, like, kind of a first for presidents to be, um, held accountable in that way? Yeah, so now we're getting a little far afield, however, I'll give a concise mm. answer, I read, uh, so yeah, I think he's guilty, I, th I think that, but again, we need all the evidence to come out, and we need yeah. the trials, but based on the indictments... I think it's pretty clear they have overwhelming evidence and testimony from people on the inside that he is guilty on a couple things. Um, take aside the New York indictment. That's, you know, even if he is guilty of that, that's probably not going to be like jail time or even a significant fine for Trump. Um, so I think he's guilty. I read, this is as far as I go here. I read a mm -hmm. Washington Post article by Carol Leonig, who's a, great reporter i think pulitzer winner we had on my podcast politics plus media 101 basically saying because trump has mandated secret service protection he won't serve in jail so basically what they'll do is they'll put him on home confinement in mar-a-lago and mm. yeah i think the question is well if he doesn't win um if he doesn't win does he die uh not a free man yeah and then if he wins, he can just uh, pardon himself, right? It's like well, that, that'll uh, there, there's two. I, I don't, you know. Now we're in legal theory, and that would go to the Supreme okay. Court. Okay, no, it's all good. But, but what he would do is, there is a standing procedural order from I think the 1970s and uh, Nixon's era, where basically the DOJ doesn't prosecute, doesn't follow through with, um, you know. A sitting president so it could theoretically based on my understanding not a legal expert not an expert yeah. here it could just stall things hmm. okay and then so just for the president election in and of itself uh to for people listening in is it is it um you know punch bowl that you'd recommend or like is there like a, a political that you'd recommend to see what people like if there's like maybe a new person that steps up and they're like hey i like this person you know, I want to learn more. Maybe I like them more than Biden. I'm going to vote for them. Um, what's the, like, a good way to do that? To, like, vet a candidate that would meet their... Or, like, you know, Republican listening. Like, you know, vet something they like better than Trump. Yeah, so my first recommendation is never vote for a third party. Vote for one of the two major parties. If you're voting... We live in a two-party system. And the way that uh, our elected officials work is sometimes... Actually, no, strike that little... Most of the time, they have to make a decision between bad and worse. And if you have to do that uh, in the election, then you have to do that. It's what, you know, 
serious people have to do on an everyday, whether it's in business, science, politics, news. Um, sometimes there just aren't any great options. So vote for one of the two parties because otherwise you are throwing your vote away. Um, so that is the first thing. Uh, but if you want to look into Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or one of Trump's challengers, uh, I think the most likely person, so who, whoever goes up against Trump, they're going to have to win Iowa. If they don't win Iowa, why do I say that? It's not the electoral votes that they get. It's the momentum that they get because it'll be able to, right now there's an air of invincibility because people like myself are saying, oh, Trump's going to be the nominee. Um, that only goes so far as him winning. Um, so if they win Iowa, then they maybe have a chance to do well enough in New Hampshire. Maybe they finish second. And then maybe they can win South Carolina, which is the first three states in the Republican primary. And then it's, you know, it's up to God. Um, sources. I would go to their website and and read their sources, read their, what their talking points are. I would also try and find videos from if you're researching a Democrat, go to CNN. Or, or let's just say go to MSNBC and Fox News. If you're researching a Republican, do the same thing. Um, go read articles about them. It, all of these sites will have features on these people. They'll have overviews of their profile, uh, of their uh, policy positions, of how they're running their campaigns. They'll probably have a section on scandals. Um, and all that I'd say is read a, a source again, the elevated source, don't go to Ben Shapiro. Don't go to one of these, don't go to the Young Turks, you know, one of these um, uh, uh, podcasters who is clearly biased uh, in trying to manipulate you with their views. Go to a source that has an, uh, like an editorial team, um, is serious funding behind it, that is Republican. So Wall Street Journal, New York Times, for example. Do that on these candidates and it should help you try to see the competing narratives. And from those competing narratives, you can then try and work past it or work out your own thoughts. Yeah, this was a good advice. The one thing that I've read is that local politics is more important. It, like in terms of affecting your daily life, uh, it's the one area that people, like in terms of like the energy they put into it and the result of it affecting their life, it's like one of those unsung areas that people should be more involved in because of, uh, or at least care more about, because like they said, like it's like a domino effect for everything else. Um, is there a way, is there any advice you'd give millennials listening in for local politics? As someone who's like been on inside of it, uh, are there opportunities there they'd recommend people check out, even if it's just like volunteering? Because um, from what I've read, like the local politics, like from like city, city council, all the way up to governor, like there's a lot of stuff that you can do there. Um, they, you know, not necessarily affected by the rest of the country, not, you know, because it's just a state, but that has a bigger impact relative to the current level of energy people put into it on their lives? That's a great question. And Republicans have done a great job, um, largely due to the billionaires, the Koch brothers, funding this network of nationwide local candidates. And they've done such a better job than Democrats because Democrats just focus on the national stuff. Um, but to your point, local politics matter, right? Let's look at Kansas, for example. They they got a Democratic governor, that's, that's state, but they had a referendum on abortion in a deeply red state that would affect millions of people's lives that um, they were able to defeat the, the Republican uh, version of the bill. Same thing happened in Ohio. They had a referendum on um, uh, changing the state constitution to make it easier to ban abortion um, and so on and so forth. I, I think the answer, Lowell, is if 
if you know if, if it's too much like if everything i explained which is all time consuming to to read mm -hmm. in these issues on the federal level and to be very clear to your listeners there's very unlikely to be any major piece of legislation outside of funding the government and and defense um and agriculture bill uh from now until november because once those bills are passed before December, hopefully of this year, um, then basically it's all campaign mode the, the next 12 mm. months. Um, so what I would suggest is you do focus on your council members. You, you read up on what they're doing um, because we are heading into an election cycle. You've, if you know what party you like, then you go and you volunteer for one of them because the member of Congress could, you could live in a safe district, um, but they're going to have volunteers. It's very unlikely that the state level folks, and then even further down the local level folks will have that many volunteers. So if you go and volunteer to knock on doors, to call people, to hand out pamphlets, it's a force multiplier because you're maybe one of five volunteers, family and friends for this candidate. So you, you're now uh, close to 20% of the workforce to get this person elected and you know what maybe they control housing zoning and housing policy in your area so uh if you vote for them maybe they're willing to build more low-income housing to help address the um unhoused person issue that that is going on in your state because the cost of housing is too high and the nimbys the wealthy liberals for example in california they don't want the that type of housing built in their neighborhood because what would happen it would uh, lower the value of their property uh the local mm -hmm. politicians can control all that so go figure out what these people do do that that shouldn't be hard you can wikipedia it um and through google and just figure out what their responsibilities are then go find out what the elections are going to be whether it be a primary election or a general election if it's a primary election figure if you want a more establishment candidate or if uh you want uh, more of a uh, outsider progressive conservative um and then go work for them it, it can be lol it could be an hour of phone calls a week it makes a difference yeah and then i know we're going late so i'll, I'll keep i'll shorten what i was going to ask you but the is there, so we talk about like getting involved in that way, is it, it sounds to me just like how complex run for office is that like being a politician itself would be like an unglamorous job that like either you have to be like really crazy or like a really deep patriot to like find value in it. Um, yes. So you've been on the inside. Is there, is there like, is there any value in like anyone listening and be like, oh, you know, I care about this issue. I'm going to run for office and it's not going to be as terrible as I think it's going to be. Or maybe it'll be even worse. <sighs> Well, I mean, you got to realize that you are opening up yourself to so much public mm. criticism that as long as you realize that um, not like anything in your past could potentially come out that you may not, uh, you know, like, or even if you're fine with it, that you, you know, maybe you don't want that information out there um, for your family and friends to see it because it could hurt them. Um, but if you if you go into it understanding that campaigns are brutal. And politics is a way to make decisions without having war. It's basically the last step before war. Uh, it's consensus building. That's what politics is. That's what good leadership is. Um, if you understand that, if you want to make a difference, um, you know, or if you, all these people have big egos. So like Democrats, Republicans, everybody walking in the hall, the staff, uh, they all have big egos. Uh, you know, I, I like to think I don't have a big ego, but I was a staffer, lol. So what does that say about me? Um, mm -hmm. If if you want to do it, 
And if you have an issue you're passionate about, and if you think that you can make a difference, 100%, go do it. Just understand it's going to be very, very difficult, but there will be value from it because you're going to be in the room making decisions. If you're not making decisions, you're at least trying to influence decisions. Your voice will be heard. You'll have a vote, and a vote is the most important thing. Um, so I would suggest they go run. Uh, there is a progressive group that I know of. Uh, it's called Run for Something. Google that. They are looking for local and state-level candidates uh, to try. And um, Amanda Littman is the is the head of that. And um, I suggest you, if you want to do it, sign up for their website, and they will help you. They will make it easier for you. If you have an interest, you're willing to put up with the crap, uh, Go sign up and, and they'll probably reach out and then explain the process to you and, and help you actually go do it. Yeah. And then uh, you have a lot of stuff that you're working on personally. Is there one thing in particular that you push people for listening in to go and, you know, is it the podcast you recommend people check out? Is it the Twitter you, people, you want people to check out? Just like one link. I'll, I'll have all of them in the show notes and I'll have like a, a pretty thing that said everything about it. But if there's like one thing that you want people, everyone listening in to check out about yours, what would it be? Yeah, but my... I would suggest that if you want to learn more about the politics, uh, it would be my podcast. Go check out Politics Plus Media 101. And the reason is um, everybody has their own inherent bias. We all see the world through our own eyes. And that's, you know, we only have our own eyes. We can try and empathize or sympathize with other people with different perspectives. Um, so our podcast is myself and John Gunnison. What is interesting about our podcast, though, is most political podcasts are folks that are yelling about the other party. It's that hatred and fear. It's that division. And most folks are uh, focusing on policy. Um, sorry, they're focusing on politics. So it's the horse race. It's what did Trump do today? It is um, what did DeSantis do? What did Biden do? How terrible? Um, or if they're focusing on policy, it's going to be a propaganda. It's going to be having a Democratic member on or a Republican member on to talk about their bill in the most flattering way possible. Our show combines my inside knowledge of it and my desire to tell the truth as best as I see it um, with policy experience um, and my co-host who is absolutely brilliant on foreign policy. So we're mostly focused on the inner workings of Congress and what is happening globally. And we do so in a way that is very substantive. So we try and give you a high-level focus for an introduction to the topic, and then go deeper and deeper and deeper as the show goes on. So if you want to try and actually understand like the big policy issues that you mentioned, uh, Lowell, like what is the big bill coming out, follow my podcast, listen to it, go through some past episodes even. Um, yeah, sure, we have some horse race stuff, but it's you know through personal experience and trying to um, explain things in a way that you won't get through cable news, that you won't get through the other political podcasts that are just basically yelling. Yeah, and I would uh, recommend the one on China that recently came out. I enjoyed that immensely. That guy, like they had a guest on, and it was like the guy's mind was like a laser. <laughs> it was so good. It, it, he was he was nuts. He was in a good way. He was very impressive. Yeah. If you want to hear about uh, China influencing Latin America, how the U.S. is or should be responding, and a take that is more nuanced, not, oh, let's bomb China, for example, or, oh, the U.S. is screwed, um, it, this is the type of podcast for you because that's how policy – this guy was a policymaker in the Trump administration, right? We're a Democrat, but mm -hmm. we still have those folks on. Yeah. 
All right. Well, then, uh, Justin, I want to appreciate and say thank you for coming on today, sharing your, your knowledge and uh, not foaming at the mouth. I think we we, we, we uh, did a good job at just like sharing our experiences without, you know, doing the thing that you mentioned earlier, where if you talk about politics, we get angry at each other. Um, so thank you so much for being here today and giving us a level headed approach with your perspective on how politics runs in America. Thank you, Lowell. I, I very much enjoyed joining your show and uh, I hope your listeners found some value in it.